All right, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of First Peter. We are in First Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Mike has a few in his hands. I'd love to bring one to you so you can follow along with us. First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 today. Telling my daughter, Laura, it's great to have Hayden singing with us this morning because she does a high harmony and Andy does the, the low harmony. It was just, it was just beautiful. I, man, I just, it was a blessing. It was, it was awesome. First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8, Peter writes, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he would love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time today, Lord, this opportunity to gather together, opening your word, knowing, Lord, that you are going to speak to our hearts. You have something to say to each one of us here today. And so, Lord, we just want to be able to be open to receive all that you have for us. We ask your blessing upon our time. We pray that, uh, Lord, you would also bless the kids downstairs today. I know they're practicing for the uh, the play on Wednesday. Bless them and the teachers down there as well. Uh, but Lord, this up here, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that we would hear from you, Lord. Uh, give us attentive hearts. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their hearts and life to you. They're not born again yet. Lord, we pray that they would see their need for a Savior, for you as their Savior. We pray that they would turn to you today. So we thank you for this time. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of my study is How to Avoid Family Feuds. And I thought about this commercial that we've been seeing on TV, so I want to show it to you because it kind of fits in with the study. I love that the mom gets up and walks away. It's like, I've had enough of this. You know, this time of year when we gather together as family, sometimes things can get like that. They can get a little little tense in family relationships. You know, my brother-in-law, he uh, uh, lives in Burbank, California, him and my sister. And his, his, his family, they, they own a family business, and, and it's, they build sets for some of the TV shows and, and the news programs that are out there. And, and they told me that he had actually built the family feud set, you know, that game there. And... I always thought it would be funny to film the actual feud that takes place after the show was over. You know, after the, 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 the family did a dumb answer, you know, and, and what happened after that. But I found a list of actual dumb answers given by contestants from the family feud. Name something you'd do tonight if the world was coming to an end tomorrow. Get the kids and pack. <laughs> <laughs> 
How about this one? During what month of pregnancy does a woman begin to look pregnant? September. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Name something you squeeze. Peanut butter. Yeah, who knows? Name a boy mentioned in nursery rhymes. Little Red Riding Hood. Or this one. Name something associated with Liverpool. The Yellow Brick Road. Wrong, wrong song. It's not. Name a famous brother and sister. Bonnie and Clyde. A few more. Name a city named after a president. Carson City. Name a famous or fictional Willie. Willie the Pooh. Two more. Name a reason for kneeling. To be beheaded. Who gives an answer like that? I mean, come on. Finally, the last one. Name something you hit when it's not working. Your spouse. <laughs> Again, I think it would be hilarious for the show to be over and for the, the, the family to get together and reactions. Hit your spouse. Y'all hit too. You know, just a few that takes place. Because it's when you're away from the public eye that your real family is formed and, and shaped. And in the same way, when we gather together in God's family, in this place, away from the world, we as a family, we're being shaped and we're being formed. And, and, and how we treat each other, the amount of time we spend in developing strong family-like relationships. And we grow. Now, undoubtedly, there's going to be conflicts. There always is in any family. The problem, of course, in every church is there's usually a Tate family. And if your last name happened to be Tate, don't take this personal. You've heard of the Tate family. A lot of aunts, a lot of uncles. There's old man Dick Tate. He wants to run everything. Then you have common Tate. He always has a word to say. Then when opportunity knocks, sisters Heza and Veja are always reluctant to step out and get involved. Hesitate and vegetate. Of course, you have the cousins, Ira and Adja. Tate, they're always stirring up trouble. Then you have Aunt Emma. She's always wondering why we can't do things like others do. And then good old Uncle Roe, always wanting to change things. But there's good Tates as well. There's Sister Meta Tate. She's always praying and thinking things over. Don't, don't forget, you know, Brother Facil. Tate, always lending a helping hand. But eventually you run into the black sheep of the family, and the Tate family especially, Ampu. He's the one that cuts himself off from the family altogether. That's it, I'm done, I'm not here any longer, I'm going to do my own thing. Are you part of the Tate family? See, it's very important that we mature and we go in our spiritual lives and that we learn how to get along with each other. Listen, the way that the Lord sees us is in Hebrews 10, 14. He sees us, for by one offering, he has perfected us forever, those who are being sanctified. Because Jesus offering his life for us, he has perfected us positionally through the shedding of his blood at Calvary. We are made perfect in him, positionally. We're not perfect yet. We'll get that way when we get to heaven. But we're told this in Hebrews 2, verse 11 and 12. In the New Living Translation, so now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. 
That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. See, here's a wonderful truth that Jesus is to us as believers in the family of God. That is, he's our older brother. And he's not ashamed to call you his brother or to call you his sister. We are one family in the family of God, a family of believers. And it's our Father's desire that we come out of that state of spiritual infancy and mature to the point where we can get along with each other in the body of, of believers, in the body of Christ. So Peter here shows us just how to do that, how to avoid some family feuds, if you would. And he shows us three things, if you're taking notes. He shows us, number one, the picture of God's family. Number two, the presence of conflict in God's family. And the power of God in God's family. Number one, the picture of God's family. Now, Peter, in this section of Scripture, began back in verse 13 of chapter 2, talking about getting along with those who are in, in the government, those who are in authority, places of authority. We looked at getting along with others on the job, in the workforce. It was a slave to the master that Peter talked about, but we applied it to employer-employee relationships, being a good employee and a good employer. Then we looked at husbands getting along with their wives and wives getting along with their husbands. Peter's covering all the bases here. And he closes up on the subject of getting along with those in the church. And he says, look at verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. You know, when you look at the church, you know, it's easy to see from all outward appearances that we are far from perfect. Yet Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prayed in John 17, Father, that they may be one as we are one. Now, Jesus was not talking about one denomination. He wasn't talking about one large ecumenical movement because God has made the the church today to be different uh, denominations and organizations. And there are believers in every one of these different denominations that make up the body of Christ. And there's that oneness that we have in Christ as believers. But what Jesus wants us to experience there in John 17 is practical oneness. Learning to get along together in the body of Christ. So Peter paints a picture for us of what the family of God should look like. And it says, first and foremost, we need to be of one mind. Your translation might say, be like-minded. Now think about that for a moment. Is that even possible to be like-minded? You know, most of us define like-mindedness as you agreeing with me, that's like-minded. This is what I think and you should agree with me. But that's, you know, that's not unity, that's just uniformity. The Bible never calls us to do that because we're all going to have different opinions about things. I mean, if right now I were to open up a discussion on politics, on the styles of clothing to wear, or on what shows are appropriate to watch on television, or what styles of Christian music are appropriate to listen to or, or have at church, we would open up a can of worms and we would have a huge disagreement. That's just the way we are. We, we're not going to agree on everything. I heard one person put it this way. If two people agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. You see, I have certain views on eschatology, on the end times. I have views on the rapture. I have views on the tribulation, on the millennium. I have views about the Holy Spirit. Some of you may not share those views. That's okay. I always want to be gracious enough to allow you to be wrong. And, and, and so, <laughs> that's all right. 
My point is, the early church didn't agree on everything. There were disagreements and arguments and divisions over things like meat sacrifice to idols and keeping the Sabbath and which days are appropriate to worship on. And I mean, a lot of our New Testament epistles, uh, letters, are dealing with disagreements in the church, problems within the church. Someone once said, the church is a lot like Noah's Ark, were it not for the flood on the outside, you sometimes couldn't stand the stench on the inside. That's because we're all sinners saved by grace, gathered together to be like-minded. As I've shared before, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. One sinner telling another sinner where to find hope. Now listen, we don't have to think alike, but we do have to have one mind. Having one mind or like-mindedness describes the mutual love we should have for one another as believers. I think the best way that one pastor described it is is to have cooperation in the midst of diversity. Cooperation in the midst of diversity. See, the words like-minded come from two Greek words meaning to think the same. So in our context, Peter is saying we need to think the same when it comes to certain things. And then he lays out what those certain things are. And he gives us four things that he points out. He says we should have compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, and be courteous. Let's look at those four things for a moment. Peter begins with having compassion for one another. That word means to, to get into someone else's skin. Now, it doesn't mean to get under someone else's skin. That's easy to do. But another, it means to feel what they're feeling. Here's the best definition I've heard for compassion. Your hurt is my hurt. If you've ever been to a crowded mall and, and if you've ever seen a mom who has, who's lost track of their child and the panic that goes across her face. I mean, it's just frantic. I mean, just in this panic mode. When you look at that, I mean, you don't look at that in pity as much as you look at that with, with you can relate to that. I mean, you can relate to the, to the panic and, oh, no, my child, there's this relatability. It, you know, how, how they would feel and what they're feeling. Your hurt is my hurt. And so because of that, I can't be callous or uncaring. In fact, I'm to, to share your sorrows. I'm to share your joys as well. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul says, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I think in the same way when Jesus was there with the multitude that had been following him and, and his disciples wanted to send them away. And, and we read that, but Jesus was moved with compassion on that. And it says that he sat them down and he fed them spiritually and physically. That's having compassion. Their hurt is, is your hurt. But more than that, it's doing something about it. It's coming alongside of them and, and showing them that you care. That's having compassion. Well, next thing Peter says is we're to, to love as brothers. Now, I know from having three sons, they didn't always get along. Three strong brothers, now four in my family, now four strong brothers, including Calvin, from time to time, they like to just show how strong they are, and they, they will wrestle each other until, you know, one of them passes out because they get in a chokehold or, or because, you know, someone gets really, really angry and things escalate. Now I know that they absolutely do love each other. Because if any one of them, someone from the outside comes in against one of the brothers, you watch them defend him to the hilt. You see, a better translation for love as brothers would be this, and it's helpful for us dads like me. It's love one another as brothers should. Isn't that better? 
The word love here comes from the Greek word phileo. It's having a fondness and affection for each other. It's brotherly love. Now, I can't help but think that when Peter wrote those words, he's thinking of his own brother, Andrew. You know, oh, Andrew, Andrew was a good brother, a loving brother. In fact, Andrew was the one that introduced Peter to his Lord. In fact, having that love one for another, John tells us this in 1 John, it's a sign that we are truly born again. Listen to this. John says this in 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So love as brothers. Next thing that Peter says on the list is we need to be tender-hearted. That is, that is the word good or soft-hearted. It means having grace and goodness in dealing with others. I think of uh, Luke chapter 9 where, when James and, and John wanted to call down fire from heaven and Jesus said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. I came not to destroy, but to save. At that point, they were not being very tender-hearted. Now what's interesting is that this word for tender-hearted in the Greek, it's the word splachnos. S-P-L-A-G-C-H-N-O-S for those that want to know how it's spelt. But the meaning is worse than that. It actually means your intestines, your kidneys, your, your guts, your heart, your, your liver. That's what it refers to, splachnos. So Peter is saying we need to have tender innards, tender insides. Actually, a little translation of this reads, have good bowels. That's what it says. not making this up. But here's why. A couple of thousand years ago, in the ancient world, it was believed that the deepest emotion that the person had is in the intestinal region. I mean, don't we say things like today, well, what is your gut telling you? Or, or, or I just feel that just down in my gut, that's the right thing to do. That's a, the deepest emotion that you can feel. So what is Peter saying here? We must be deeply concerned for others. doesn't matter who they are. Let me put it to you this way. The church ought to be the place where the, the walking wounded feel at home. I've always said this. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a hotel for saints. People who are wounded and beat up by this world should be able to come in and know that people actually do care about each other and are generally concerned for them. So, so be tenderhearted. Now finally, the fourth word that Peter uses here, he says, number four, be courteous. Be courteous. That doesn't explain a lot. I mean, when I think of being courteous, I think of what my mom taught me, you know, growing up. You know, say please, say thank you, open the door, you know, for an adult, shut the door for them, be courteous. But a better translation of this word is humble-minded. Be humble-minded. Paul put it this way in Romans 12:3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Paul went on to say in Philippians 2.3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. See, there needs to be humility in the church family. Lifting one another up uh, above ourselves. It's hard to have divisions in the church when humility is the attitude. Now, it's easy when it's the opposite. When, when pride is, is the attitude in the church, I, I mean, the, 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 man, you have problems. But, but, and the temptation is there to think better than, than yourself. You are. But when the world looks at the church family, they should see humility and most unusual unity, a spirit of oneness that's not really found anyplace else on this earth. They should see believers who are so united and closely knit together that it blows them away about how much they support each other and pray for each other through the trials and difficulties in this life. 
So compassion and love and tender heart and, and humility and, and courteousness. This is a perfect picture of God's family. Now, sadly, what the world sees is bickering and complaining and grumbling and division. And, and unfortunately, we don't always fit that perfect picture of God's family because of point number two, if you're taking notes, the presence of conflict in God's family. There's conflicts. We do have conflicts. Perhaps you've heard this limerick. There once were two cats of Kilkenny. Each thought there was one cat too many. They fought and they spit. They clawed and they bit till instead of two cats, there weren't any. You see, the difference between a strong, healthy family of God and a weak, sick one is not whether conflicts exist, but rather our attitude towards one another and our approach in handling those conflicts. There will always be conflicts in in God's family because we're all still sinners. It's not until there's no more sin that there's going to be no more conflicts. But, But how we handle those conflicts can cause us to grow and to be that healthy and strong church that God desires us to be. So when it comes to church conflicts and, and getting along with each other, what do you do? What do you do if you have somebody who's really grouchy when you're around them and, and kind of griping all the time or they insult you or they try to, to hurt you or threaten you or they, they talk behind your back? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Peter tells us here in verses 9 through 11, this is how we are to respond. Look at verse 9. He says, don't, don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing." Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and seek good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, apparently in this church, they had conflicts going on. People were not forgiving one another. And, and as Christ has forgiven us, they were, not re- they were returning evil for evil. They were being reviled and reviling back. And they were, verse 10, not refraining the tongue from evil and lips from speaking deceit. So what does Peter say? The solution is stop it. Don't do it anymore. Listen, if someone does something evil to you, you don't do something evil back to them. You don't hit back. You don't fight back. You don't yell back. You bless back. Is what Peter says. Why? So you may be blessed in return. You know, I think about Peter and writing this, and, and you know, he probably had a few circumstances in his mind where he's going, you know, I'm talking from experience. It's not good to fight back. Okay? You know, I would not turn return evil for evil. I mean, think about when Jesus was in the garden there with his disciples, and they came to arrest Jesus, and, and, and the Roman soldiers came. What did Peter do? Did he say, oh, good to see you, my friends, guards? What can I help you with? No, not, not Peter. Oh, yeah, you're going to arrest Jesus? Well, you know, he pulls out a sword. I'll show you. And he you know, wanted to do a Mike Tyson on the, on the servant of the high priest here. Now, thank God he was a fisherman and not a swordsman. Otherwise, because he was going for his neck, but just got the ear. What did Jesus say? Peter. And I, I can picture Jesus. Peter. Not a good idea, okay? Put away your sword. Don't you know that those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword? Put away your, your, your sword. It's not how you fight this, Peter. So when Peter's writing this, I, I believe that it's still fresh in his memory. You don't return evil for evil, reviling for reviling. Now, practically speaking, especially this time of year, it can be a little bit difficult, especially with Christmas shopping and all, and, and not wanting to render evil for evil when, when you've been waiting for 10 minutes to pull into that parking space with your blinker on, waiting and waiting, and right before you pull in, someone pulls in right in front of you and grabs that spot. 
it's, it's not too easy to handle that. And, and when you, and then you finally get into the store and you're waiting the line in the line to purchase that gift and, and the clerk behind the counter is just talking and talking, talking to the coworker that is standing there and you're waiting and waiting and going, can't believe this. Then you go to lunch at the restaurant and your food is cold. And suddenly that poor waitress gets the full wrath of your frustration from the parking lot to the clerk beyond the counter to the cold food. Just poured out, I can't believe this food is cold. Here's my point. This is easy to read sometimes, but it's not always easy to do. But here's the thing. If we step back and say, I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I'm not going to allow these circumstances to frustrate me. Instead, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for that person that just pulled into my, my parking spot. Perhaps, man, perhaps they're going into a hard time and, and they're frustrated. Man, they need it, you know. I'm going to pray for that clerk talking to that co-worker. Perhaps this was important. I, I am going to send my food back because I don't like cold food. But, but I'm not going to take it out on the poor waitress. I'm going to be kind to her and do it nicely. See, we have a choice to repay evil for evil or to repay evil with kindness. In fact, that's what Peter says here, knowing that you were called to this. We're called to be kind. And he says that you may inherit a blessing. In other words, we'll be blessed if we do that. I like what Warren Wearsby writes. He says, as Christians, we can live on one of three levels. We can return evil for good, which is the satanic level. We can return good for good and evil for evil, which is the human level. Or we can return good for evil, which is the divine level. He says, Jesus is a perfect example of this latter approach. As God's loving children, we must do more than give an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is the basis for justice. We must operate on the basis of mercy, for that is the way God deals with us. I like that. Peter here says in verse 10, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You want to love life? You want to have good days? I mean, we usually tell people that, don't we? Hey, have a good day. Someone will tell you, hey, you know, have a good day. Thanks. So if we want to have good days, if we want to have a good life, here's how we do it. Love people. I mean, that's what he says. We want to love life. Have good, love people, the good people and the bad people. But you know, what you find is there's just people that are out there that just hate life and, and they, they seem to hate people. I mean, Solomon, he didn't hate people, but he, he hated life. Solomon was a classic example of a man who should have loved life. He had everything going for him, and yet he wrote this in Ecclesiastes 2.17. Ecclesiastes 2, Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. I think there are some people that have made that their life verse. What's your life verse? My life verse is, I hated life because the world was done under the sun distressing to me. Not a good life verse. But you ask them, hey, how you doing? I'm just enduring life one day at a time. Okay, Eeyore. I mean, that's just Eeyore mentality. Just endure life. Peter says, no, you can enjoy life. Enjoying life is where you realize that our God is sovereign. Where you realize that he's in control. That he's the one that allows the good and the frustrating people to come into our lives for his own purposes. Our job is to bless people and pray for people, to love people, not jump all over them. Our job is to refrain our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. In fact, this verse forbids us from speaking maliciously towards each other. Our speech should never be that of, of deception or innuendos or, or putting someone else down or misleading statements. Then Peter says in verse 11, let him turn away from evil. In other words, when we are confronted with a circumstance 
or, or a situation that would lead us into a dead-end street of sin and consequences were to, to turn aside from that and go in the other direction. We're to choose another path. Don't go down that path. It says the psalmist says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it does he meditate day and night. How much heartache and misery would be avoided if believers were to make tracks when tempted and to stay, to flee places where sin is easily accessible. When temptation rears its ugly head, turn aside, run, and go the opposite direction. Instead of doing evil, do good, Peter says. That's the best way to enjoy life. Do good, turn away from evil, do the will of God. See, I love that Christianity is not only negative, but it's also the positive. See, Christianity, the Bible doesn't only tell us what not to do, it tells us what to do. You know, turn away from evil, do good. He says, let him seek peace and pursue it. I've always liked that verse because I always picture in my mind, if, if you're my age, that the old Mutual of Omaha TV programs and they would have that the lion were going after the gazelle and they're running, just, just chasing after that thing and, and you know, in hot pursuit. Pursue peace. Seek peace. Seeking peace can be controlling our actions. Making sure you've made every effort to listen to the other side. Not be so hasty with our words. Because sometimes situations can be more complex than they seem. And sometimes there's information that's missing. Proverbs 18, 13 tells us, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and a shame to him. So we want to hear a matter first. Seek peace, Peter says. Pursue it. We do this by giving a soft answer. When someone verbally attacks us, the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. We do this when we forgive those who sin against us. We do this when we avoid speaking evil and instead we humble ourselves. So guard your tongue, turn away from evil, do good and pursue peace with each other. When we live like this, something happens. And that brings us to our final point. There is number three, the power of God and the family of God. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, Peter's saying there's a reward for being kind to each other, tender-hearted, courteous. There are blessings that come from living this out in our lives, avoiding family feuds. It's the power of God moving through the man or the woman of God. For he says, uh, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Now, listen, this is not a negative thing that he's saying here. It's not, watch out because the eyes of the Lord are on you. You know, it's not, you better watch out. Better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. God is watching you. That's not what it is. You know, when I was a kid, my mom would use that on me. Remember, God is watching you. Okay. I've used it on my boys. Going, hey, God is watching you. And I know that can be a force for you not wanting to do anything wrong or evil, but that's not really the primary thought that Peter is, is giving here. Because the phrase, eyes of the Lord, was a very common Old Testament term. And when it's used, it's always used with God's watchfulness over his people uh, as he watches them carefully because they are a special concern to him. It's careful, uh, watchful oversight. We're told in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. See, it's not so much associated with judgment as it is with God's watchful eye over mankind. Yes, he's assessing good. He's assessing evil. But the idea here is his omniscience. 
that's not supposed to emphasize the judgmental aspect of God's watchfulness, but just the omniscience. In other words, he's aware of every detail going on in your life right now. And we see God's heart in this in Second Chronicles uh, 16, verse 9, which says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. Why is God watching us so carefully? Why are his eyes on us constantly? That he might do great things in our lives. That he might immediately respond to our prayers. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. See, the idea is that God is watching us, not waiting to bring down a hammer of judgment on our lives, but instead to, to answer the prayers of our hearts, the prayers of the righteous. Lord is watching and waiting to meet your every need. That's the idea. He wants to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Peter is simply saying this. Look, you can live like this. You don't have to retaliate. You don't have to get your own pound of flesh. You don't have to take vengeance into your own hands. You don't have to live that way. Simply have the right attitude, gracious and humble and sympathetic spirit, harmonious attitude. You can give back love to your enemies even though they give you hate. Don't retaliate. Live under the authority of the Word of God with a controlled tongue, controlled lips, turning away from evil, doing good, pursuing peace, hunting after it, no matter how intensely you must do that. You can live like that without fear because whatever difficulty you get into, you don't need to be the one to get out of it. All you need to do is let the Lord know and He's ready to hear your prayer. And what a tremendous promise this is. What power there is to, to those of us in the family of God. Or to quote what Pastor Chuck Smith would always say, glorious. This is one of those verses we just say glorious. That's my new favorite word, glorious. It's glorious that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to our prayers. But, it's always a but. It's the last half of verse 12. But the faith of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now understand, the faith of the Lord is different from that of the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are God watching us to meet every need, to direct us, to lead us in the ways of righteousness. The faith of the Lord, on the other hand, is the most often used for judgment. You know, the eye speak of omniscience. The face begins to demonstrate the expression of anger. And that's the way the term is used here. When God becomes angry, the Bible talks about his face. A classic example of this is in Genesis 19.13 regarding Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, Therefore we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So God sees the wicked and he sees it with an, an angry face because of the wickedness and sin. But, let's go back, but the righteous, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and he watches us with love and concern and he hears her cry. See, when we cry out to the Lord, we're living this way. We're talking about power in the family of God. We're united in prayer, relying on God's Spirit. God's going to do great things. Look at the screen. I've got Proverbs 30, verse 24 to 28. I want to close with this. You can turn there if you want, but, but there's a neat, neat little section of Proverbs right here. It says in verse 24, Proverbs 30, There are four things which are little on the earth. For they are exceedingly wise. The ants are people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps with its hands, and it is in king's palaces. So four little creatures that are on this earth, 
but they're exceedingly wise, the, the Proverbs writes here. And, and number one, the ants. Their wisdom is in provision. They store up food for the coming winter. Then he talks about the badger. Their wisdom is in protection. They make their home hidden in the rocks. The fourth one we see is the spider. Their wisdom is persistence. They can go anywhere, even king's palaces, and they're persistent in making their strong webs. In the same way we, you know, we, we work together like busy ants in God's family, he provides for us. Like a badger, he protected us. We are protected when we, when we make our home in him, hidden in the rock of Jesus Christ. And like a spider, great things can be accomplished if we are persistent, if we don't give up. But then there's this third little creature listed here, the locust or the grasshopper. They have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. Now, one individual grasshopper, you know, if it lands on you, it's no big deal. You know, just kind of flick it off unless you're a girly guy. <laughs> grasshopper. But a swarm of grasshoppers moving in unity that devours everything in the sight, I would be screaming a girly girl scream. I mean, ah, you know. Listen, in the same way, God's people individually, not that impressive. You know, we can be like little bugs. We bug people. <laughs> but united, we can make a mark on this world. Just look at Jesus' disciples. There in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, He empowered them to eventually turn the world upside down. Now think about this. When the Lord said to them, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. When did the Holy Spirit come upon them? While they were all in one accord in the upper room, praying together. The point is we'll see the power of God in the family of God when there is unity, when there's no one repaying evil for evil, when we're seeking peace and pursuing it. There is power that unfolds when God's people are united in prayer. Second Corinthians 10.4 For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What is our weapon? It's, it's prayer. It's prayer. I believe that that was the secret of the success of the early church, and that's the secret of what God wants to do in His church today. Prayer. And, and, and there's power when we pray. His ears are open to our prayers. That's why I encourage you, the last Wednesday of every month, we have our praise, prayer, and communion night. And it has been amazing. We, 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 we pray for one another. God's doing mighty things during that prayer time. You know, we have the prayer team here that, that prays for your needs. We as a body believe we need to be praying for, for our community, praying for one another. And we can watch God just do mighty, mighty things with our church. Now, we need to avoid the family feuds, handle conflicts, that, you know, the way God shows us, be kind to people, especially praying for enemies, and we'll see God move mightily in this church. We need to be a praying church. Again, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, His ears are open to their prayers. Now, I will say this. If you're not a Christian today, God is only open to one prayer that He's going to respond to you, and, and that is a prayer that would lead you to, into that place of finding forgiveness for your sin. God is interested in your soul. He's interested in your heart. And if you've not found that forgiveness of sin, God is knocking on your heart. And He wants to come into your life and He wants to forgive you. But you've got to open that door. And you've got to let Him into your heart and into your life. You've got to surrender your heart to Him. If you've not done that, I want to give you that opportunity this morning before we close. Let's all pray together. Father, we thank You for this time. We thank you, Lord, that as your church we do face conflicts because it's just the way things are, Lord. But thank you that you, your word gives us how to handle these conflicts. 
No, the, the greatest of these is love. That we need to have that love one for another. Love demonstrated to us by you. By sending your own son, God, to the cross. By, by those that believe in him. Your word says we would not perish, but we would have everlasting life. And Father, I pray right now, if there's anyone here that, have, that has not put their belief in your son, Jesus Christ, have not put their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, well, that means they've not found the forgiveness of their sin, and that means they're still dead in their sin and their trespasses. Lord, I pray, if there's anyone here this evening, or this morning, rather, Lord, that, that has not, not given their life to you, Lord, that they would, would surrender today. They would stop the way they're going, turn from it, and turn to you. While their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning? You want to do that. You want to give your life to Jesus Christ. You want to surrender your heart to him. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. I want to make sure you're right with the Lord. You're right with God. You want to give your life to him. Just raise your hand so I could pray for you. Anybody at all. Father, thanks for this time together. Lord, thank you that uh, we're part of one family, Lord. We give you all the glory for that. Help us to live lives pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.